Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about unintended consequences and good ideas going bad. I've been thinking about the chicken and the egg, but not in the traditional sense. I've been thinking about integrity and honesty, and where greed, lack of personal responsibility, and putting profits above all else leads. My guest today is Marin McKenna. She's an award-winning journalist who specializes in public health and food policy, which turns out to be a heck of a lot sexier than you may have thought, filled with mystery, subterfuge, conflict, and intrigue. Her brain brand new book is Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. I think changed a lot more as well, which we'll learn today. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us, Marin. Thank you for having me and thank you for that fantastic introduction. You perfectly summed up all the themes of my book. Oh, well, well great. I was so excited to talk about it. It was wonderful to read. And I, I'd always thought I was informed, pretty informed. And I, there's informed and informed, I realize. So you start your book with two quotes that so well sum up the premise and I think the miscalculation and negligence involved in this topic. You start with Henry Seglio to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1957. He says, um, I think any industry producing meat for almost a price of bread has got a big future. Um, and I think he thought a positive one. So that's what we'll explore during this conversation. And then Albert Camus has said, on this earth, there are plagues and there are victims. And it's up to us as much as possible not to join forces with the plagues, the plague 1947. So I want to start with the popularity of the bird. Um, and I, that was news to me as what a drastic change that was from being sort of an afterthought of egg production to chicken nuggets. So maybe you could start giving us a history lesson. It is odd how much uh, chicken has become the center of our plates and really in many ways the center of our lives. Chicken is the meat that we eat more than any other in the United States, almost 91 pounds per person per year. But that's a pretty recent development that we have eaten so much chicken going back to really just about the 1970s, which is when chicken starts to overtake beef. And if you went back to our grandparents' or great-grandparents' time, chickens, uh, chickens the individuals as opposed to chicken the category, were really kind of an afterthought. You know, everyone had chickens, but they mostly had chickens to produce eggs, and you mostly ate the chickens when their egg-laying days were done, in, in cases, except in the cases when they hatched out as roosters, in which case you could feed them up for a while and then eat them as a young chicken because you usually only needed a few roosters, not 50% of your flock. And so there was this rolling series of innovations across the first half of the 20th century, of which antibiotics, routine feeding of antibiotics, is by far the greatest, that transform chickens, those individual backyard or barnyard birds, into chicken, this this dominant category of protein that none of us seem able to get away from. I mean, that, that, that poundage of chicken that we eat each year comes down to about one serving of chicken every single day. Well, and it was crazy, too, the pounds of meat that a person used to eat and eats now, and then the, the amount of chicken and how that's transformed, and sort of the combination of either coincidence or circumstances that led to this, and then the consequences of it, because, you know, World War Two and a shift in production and industry, and then in alignment with that, the development of the antibiotic. So you, you said when we started talking that this is a story of unintended consequences, and I really do view this that way, because all of this 
this routine use of antibiotics, and just you know, to be clear, we are talking about giving antibiotics just about every day in food or water to most of the meat animals on the planet, not because they are sick, but for other uses of the drug to fatten the animals and to protect them against the conditions that they're held in. All of that starts with a good faith attempt to heal the food system after the devastation of World War II when there's been an enormous upsurge in the infrastructure of the system in order to feed soldiers and sailors, which has gone away, that market has gone away after the war has ended. And so the system of livestock production is thrashing about trying to find ways to cut costs um, and while also keeping up production. And what they turn to is giving animals much cheaper feed that doesn't have complete protein in it. And since it doesn't have complete protein, they need to find also cheap supplements in order to to make sure that the animals will do well on these much cheaper grains. And into that conundrum walks a, a representative of one of the first manufacturers of antibiotics in 1948 and figures out that if you give tiny doses of antibiotics to animals, they will grow faster they'll grow at the same speed on this feed, and they can also be protected from the conditions of being held together in close confinement so that you can produce more and more and more. So all that, that initial good impulse to, to produce protein cheaply and reliably and, and to make sure that meat production stays, protein production stays high despite the devastation of the war turns into a vast engine for the the production of more meat than any of us really need and to the a generator of antibiotic resistance and drug resistant infections that you know now kill 23,000 Americans a year and maybe 700,000 people around the world and almost by accident right that the they didn't purposely put the antibiotic in this feed they just realized it was there and then notice has changed in those particular chickens who were getting this tiny amount of it so it's a complicated story. So this, uh, I think that the person who was responsible for this, um, who is a, a scientist named Thomas Jukes, who worked for the antibiotic manufacturer Letterly Laboratories. And it's like, made, is he our hero or our anti-hero? <laughs> uh, I th- he, I, you know, he, I think he starts out as a hero and kind of turns yeah, into, I think so. by, by his own insistence, turns into a villain. Um, so Jukes was familiar. Jukes was a, a biologist and a specialist in the dietary needs of chickens, and he, he was not at this company because he was helping to make antibiotics. His portfolio was something different, but he was assigned to this project of trying to find an inexpensive supplement for inexpensive animal feed. And he was aware of some very early work that had been done and then dropped at the University of Wisconsin, which was a center for research into vitamins at that time. And that this early work at Wisconsin, um, several researchers wanted to produce a lab mouse that would be free of all pathogens so that when they were used for research, there wouldn't be anything unintended affecting the, the results of the research. And so they fed mice doses of antibiotics essentially to, to, to sterilize their intestinal tracts. And they discovered, to their surprise, that the mice seemed to be fatter at the end of the experiment than at the beginning. But they never did anything with this. They just sort of filed it as something interesting. So Jukes, thrashing about for a way to feed meat animals uh, and being familiar with chickens, which also, because they're his personal specialty and also because they're small, and so they make good lab animals compared to, like, pigs or or, or cattle, um, he takes the 
manufacturing leftovers from the drug that his company is making, and he feeds, he dries it, and he feeds it to chickens as one of a set of supplements that he's trialing in an experiment of different diets. And on Christmas Day, 1948, when he goes to weigh all of his experimental chickens, he discovers that the chickens that got the, the dried mash that the antibiotic had been brewed in gained far more weight than any of the others. Now, was this a total surprise? Uh, you know, he, he must have had some hypothesis in mind, and that's why he included the antibiotic leftovers, manufacturing leftovers, in his experiment. But in the sort of public statements that the company made for about a year afterward, the statements that might have been a little disingenuous, they make it sound as though they didn't really know what was going on. This was a total surprise. But they're, they're, the patent trail of, of what they filed for reveals that they figured it out pretty early on. So I love that as a nation, that the qualities I think that make us so great also oftentimes lead to um, downfalls in area. And I think it's kind of childlike. It's this stubbornness. And once we get on a track, we're on there. And then this excitement with what we found, and we want to use it everywhere. So instead of realizing, huh, chickens don't do really well with soybeans, let's feed them something else. It's like, no, we can make soybeans work. And then once we find that these antibiotics do work, it's like, well, let's use them for everything. Let's wash our lettuce and spinach in streptomycin. We'll just dunk everything in it. Put it in our lipstick. So it's, it's certainly true, and, and I think kind of defensible, that when antibiotics first come on the scene, and, and just, just you know, a very quick history lesson, I think most people heard at some point in maybe like sixth grade biology that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin when he left a window open in his lab in London in 1928 uh, because there was no air conditioning and it was you know in 1928 and it was probably hot in his lab and something blew in the window on the plates of staph bacteria that he was studying and when he came back a couple of weeks later to clean off those plates to reuse them because again 1928 they have no plastic they're just using glass plates that have to be washed and reused he discovers that on the plates of bacteria there are dead zones and in the center of each dead zone is a blue-green mold, penicillium mold, which produces a compound that we come to call natural penicillin, the first of the penicillins. And, and, and from those, you know, what, penicillin doesn't get developed into a drug until the early 1940s out of a variety of reasons having to do with Fleming's own strengths as a scientist and, and whether there's a need for, uh, for such a drug. And then World War II comes and there's suddenly a great need. And the penicillin compound gets smuggled to America and developed into a drug around New York and New Jersey by various pharmaceutical firms. And it is not, uh, it is not overstating things to say that penicillin changes the world, that infections that used to be caused by incredibly common minor injuries, scratches, cuts, scrapes, not, not to mention childbirth or, or even you know, dental cavities, used to kill people in horrible ways, and penicillin stopped that process cold. And it saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of soldiers and sailors in World War II who came home who would not otherwise have come home. And so, of course, there's this joyous overreaction in which if a little bit is good, a lot is better, and suddenly penicillin, as you say, is being flung into everything from gum to throat lozenges to face washes to lipstick. So Alexander Fleming, to give him credit, figures out fairly quickly that this is a bad trend. And in 1945, in his speech accepting the Nobel Prize in Medicine for the discovery of penicillin, he warns that if we overuse his drug, we will 
undermine the power of antibiotics. And he specifically talks about do not underdose because then you'll set up a Darwinian back battleground in which the, the weak die and the strong survive and the strong expand their numbers into the territory that the weak previously occupied. He doesn't realize it, but he is exactly describing what will happen in agriculture just a couple of years later. He gives that speech in 1945. Thomas Jukes does his experiment in 1948. And the experiment is specifically to give to underdose animals, to give them tiny doses of antibiotics that would never cure an infection, but, as Fleming predicted, set up this Darwinian battleground literally in the guts of the animals getting these antibiotics that cause some resistant bacteria to emerge and to multiply into the space that was previously occupied by the other bacteria that have just been killed. And so so animals, farm animals, essentially become sort of little factories for the production of resistant bacteria. Again, unintended consequences, because the point was just to, to make them grow up more rapidly, to protect them against conditions, to, to make them so reproducible that we could bring down the cost of protein. And also another combination of circumstances or, or coincidence in the sense of there wasn't really a mindset that what we were doing to animals would be so directly connected and related to effects on, on humans at that time, it yeah, seems, in science. Yeah, to give, to give the earlier expend, early experimenters some credit, you know, in the, I, I read a lot of old scientific journal articles in, in order to prepare this book. And in the scientific literature between about 1950 and 1955, there definitely is some questioning of what is going on in these animals and is it going to be a threat? Is there going to be a negative result? And the, the conclusion that people come to, including Jukes, the scientist who starts all this, is that sure antibiotic resistance is going to develop in some bacteria because it's an inevitable biological process. Resistance is what bacteria do to protect themselves against each other because bacteria from long before when we came along made compounds that allowed them to attack other bacteria to compete for living space and nutrition. And it was that compound that excreted by that mold that Fleming took and made into the first penicillin. But, but the scientists who were examining what was happening in agriculture said, sure, resistant bacteria are going to result, but they're going to provide a kind of fail-safe. They'll, they'll be in the animal's guts. We'll keep giving antibiotics to the animals. If, if resistant bacteria rise to some undetermined level of the population in their guts, the, the, the antibiotics will just stop working, and, and then we'll know that this process has sort of reached an end. Well, what they never thought of was that those bacteria might leave the animals, and that's where the human health risk comes into play. And that's also kind of the duh factor. It's like, I remember last week I saw an article that said it was proven that animals have emotions. <laughs> I'm like, really? Did you not have a cat, dog, mouse, anything? Like, you know, you had to prove it. Like, that is this aspect of science that you just keep thinking, really? Seriously? And it seems also that Jukes was making value choices, especially when it became more clear that, that this feeding people for less outweighed everything else. One of the things that fascinates me so much about Jukes, who, who died in the 1990s, is that he never, he, throughout his life, he never admitted one downside to this, this growth-promoting effect that he started rolling. He was 
what we would now call a, a science communicator, I guess, and an extremely prolific and zesty one. So all through his life, in addition to doing the, the academic work that he did, he, he ended up as a faculty member at the University of California. He, he also wrote many, many, many sort of popular articles about science. And he was writing those across the time when, as a country, we were debating things like the use of DDT and and the safety of saccharin and 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 the um, whether to regulate uh, emissions in the environment, all the crucial environmental questions of our time. And he always came down <laughs> against the environmental movement and essentially in favor of industry. Um, he even uh, he he excoriated racial racial Carson when Silent Spring was um, was published, the the book that started the American environmental movement in the early 1960s. And, and with just sort of adamant denial. It was. He did. You know. He believed in his. He believed in his stuff, in his in his results, and he didn't believe that there was any downside. And it's fascinating to me, having traced this, you know, 60, 70-year history um, in, in a fair amount of detail, how much people could be blinkered by their uh, comfort in a, a certain segment of the things that they had found. You know, this is, this is in real life the... the, the uh, um, the slogan that people used to joke about that Dow Chemical used to use, better living through chemistry. Well, and, you know, again, informed and informed, because I think we, we do, most of us know where penicillin came from, but we don't know how quickly the resistance to it developed. And also, I think then how further antibiotics were, were created. I love the chapter in the book that explains about, you know, collecting different types of manure and sort of scientists saying, hey, you're over there where there's some good poop. If you could grab that, um, you know, I may, might be able to create a, a new antibiotic. Yeah. <laughs> So I just, I, you know, I find this story so enchanting that, um, of course, the, so the first antibiotic comes from that speck of mold. Um, and, and, and it's important to remember that penicillin, in a sense, was never patented. Um, I mean, they, when it was brought to the United States, there was such a crucial use, you know, it was so, so needed for the war, the war effort that um, the government, the American government, forced the compound to be distributed among a number of pharma firms. And what what those firms eventually patented were were their competitive ways of making the drug more efficiently or less expensively. But the compound itself, raw penicillin, was never patented. But it it sold enormously well. We talked about you know it, how it was put into gum and lozenges and so forth. It wasn't a prescription drug until the early 1950s. It was first an over-the-counter drug. And so companies looked at that. Companies that previously would have been made making what I guess we could say were patent medicines, you know, or sort of over-the-counter medicines, and they wanted some of that. And so they went in search of their own molds or soil bacteria similar to the, the one that produced penicillin. And, and several of them, you know, they formed partnerships with airlines and with the diplomatic service and with churches that sent out missionaries and, and with embassies, and they sent out sample tubes, you know, what we would think of as, as um, test tubes. And, and asked people from all over the world to send back just a scoop of soil because there might be something in it. And out of those scoops of soil sent to different companies, we get antibiotics that we still use today, things like um, streptomycin and uh, vancomycin and daptomycin, which actually is a, um, an antibiotic that sat on the shelf from the 1950s and only was really developed in uh, about the year 2004. So those, those banks of soil from the 1950s are still 
yielding uh, antibiotic compounds. There's even some consideration now in kind of in the world of pharmaceutical chemistry that they, they turned away from doing searches in soils in about the 1970s because they seem to keep finding the same things over and over again, which is really an expression of the, the crudity of the lab tools they had at the time. And now that we have different lab tools that can look for, can, can culture bacteria differently and, and look for things with a more fine-grained search, there is some, some attention being paid to going back to natural sources again and sampling the, the world's environment, trying to find the new antibiotics that are so crucially needed because antibiotic resistance from misuse of antibiotics in medicine and agriculture has threatened almost all the drugs we have. So you got me thinking about that with the uh, history of penicillin, because I started thinking about, one, my reaction to chicken, which I always found sort of strange, but oftentimes I'll, I won't feel well after I eat it for different reasons. But I started thinking I'm allergic to penicillin, and I was since I was a baby. And then I'm allergic to the strains of that Bactrim and some of the others of, of penicillin. And I thought, oh, it makes perfect sense. I was born in 1962. That was like the, the heyday um, where the sort of uh, realization of overuse had, had become I'm a parent. It, it was really amazing to me to find out how much penicillin allergy was present in the early years of using the drug, um, uh, some of which came from just enthusiastic overuse in agriculture, particularly for penicillin, particularly in the dairy industry, that in order to prevent infections in cows' udders um, as they were cycling on and off from having calves and from being milked, they would use a lot of penicillin to such an extent that penicillin uh, began to show, raw active penicillin began to show up in milk that was being sold so that children who drink more milk than adults started in the early, late 50s and early 60s to get penicillin allergies, even if they had not been given the drug because they were receiving the drug in the milk they were drinking. In, in a, a huge, huge dose, right? It was right, I think right, it right. even exactly. more it than been, you would have gotten from a doctor. It was as though in, in drinking a glass of milk, they were actually taking a dose of, a dose of penicillin from a prescription. And the, the thing that finally tips this over, bizarrely, is that, of course, when you make cheese, you, know, you take milk and you inoculate it with a bacterium, and it's the action of that bacterium that, that solidif helps the milk to solidify and preserves it. Well, cheesemakers started complaining that they couldn't make cheese anymore because there was so much penicillin in the milk that when they put their starter cultures into the milk, the penicillin killed it. <laughs> and from that, the FDA uh, and the, the parallel authority in uh, the United Kingdom actually acts to restrict some of the sales of penicillin in agriculture, specifically in the dairy industry, because the amount of penicillin that's literally flowing out to the populace is just absurd. Making it so we can't make cheese. So let's talk a little bit about um, antibiotics and, and the, at kind of the time frame when they had become a crutch and um, how it had shifted the industrialization of production and the habits. And it originally had been used in two ways, preventative and growth promoting. Um, and maybe throw out some of the unbelievable numbers of the amounts of antibiotics we were using in chicken production. I mean, it's hundreds of tons. Right. So um, within five years of Jukes' first experiment, U.S. farmers are giving 500,000 pounds of antibiotics to their animals every year. In the most recent federal data, which actually which lags by a couple of years, the, the, t the total in the United States is more than 34 million pounds. 
Now, we don't know exactly where those drugs are going because the amount of data that's tendered to the FDA by veterinary pharma manufacturers is very, very small. And so we don't know, for instance, into which species those drugs are going. Is it cattle or pigs or chicken? Supposedly, the FDA is supposed to get that species data for the first time this coming year. And we also don't know uh, how much the, the drugs are given, like in an injection versus in feed or water, which would help us understand a bit, was it growth promotion, was it preventive, or was it therapeutic, was it meant to cure infection? Now, due to a, a set of rules that were promulgated a few years ago by the Obama administration and just went into effect in January of this year, growth promotion in the United States is now supposed to be illegal. And any preventive use is supposed to be only under the, the authority of a veterinarian. And a farmer whose animals are receiving drugs has to have an ongoing relationship with that veterinarian. That's a rule called the Veterinary Feed Directive. However, you know, it's an open question how well that's going to work because there really aren't as many veterinarians in the country as there used to be. And it's, it, it, it's a real challenge for people, particularly in the big livestock centers in the, the center of the country, to, to get veterinarians to their properties as rapidly as they need to, to be able to follow this process the way, the way the FDA thinks it should be followed. And this is, I mean, we're talking about, if I understood it correctly, even oftentimes before the chicken is born, um, when it's in the egg, they're giving it a vaccine, and then they're also giving it antibiotic because they pierced the, the shell, and they don't want an infection. So the antibiotic use is starting even prior to the chicken being born. That's right. And, and this is why, so often people ask me, um, well, what if I just buy organic chicken? Isn't that the, won't I be protecting myself? Isn't that the same thing? And actually, the U.S. organic standard allows antibiotic use in chickens um, when they're in the shell and on the first day of life. And from day two of their lives, they can't receive any antibiotics. But that's tricky because what, what's going on here, you know, as Jukes and his cohort found out, is that those antibiotics, if they're given in feed, they go into the gut of the animal and they affect the mix of gut bacteria. It's possible that if a chick got antibiotics even on its first day of life, um, that could change the mix of bacteria in its guts in, in enough of a way to tilt some of those gut bacteria toward resistance. And so, um, so the, the, the regulations of exactly what's going on and exactly what we should buy, are, they're, they're, they, they conceal more than we think they do. Which we know also now from childbirth that there seems to be some connection between um, whether or not the mother had received antibiotics during the birth and then the child's resistance and uh, reaction to antibiotics later in life. And whether their their you know their microbiome has been permanently changed. There's a there's more a more really guilt for us mothers. <laughs> really. There's a really interesting and, and scary set of research that's being done in New York by. Um, uh, by a, a lab uh, headed by Dr. Martin Blazer, who's a fantastic scientist who wrote a great book called Missing Microbes. Uh, his, his lab has been pursuing the kind of obvious question when you think about the problem of gro- the issue of growth promotion was, well, if, if this fattening effects works, works in animals, does it work in us? <laughs> so well, he's been trying, trialing in mice um, uh, diets with various 
kind various levels of antibiotic in them from the tiny doses of antibiotics that one might receive from from antibiotic just being present in our environment which which is in fact true there's a, there are there's antibiotics raw antibiotics from hospital effluent and pharma effluent and so forth present in low doses in in water in the United States for instance or the higher doses of actually taking an antibiotic if you have a child with an ear infection for instance does that permanently affect our metabolisms it seems to do that in mice but is it responsible for the obesity epidemic in, in American humans? You know, more research needed, but it's a pretty scary thought. Yeah, more research needed. But you have to say, well, it seems so, you know, and very likely. And it is frightening. And I think that's another reason why, um, which is a natural response, we want to look away. While I was reading the book, Big Chicken, I had given my son a um, uh He's a picky eater. And I had given him some frozen chicken tenders. And it was a new brand. We hadn't used it before. And then later that night, he's like, oh, I have a stomachache. And I'm still in a panic. That was three days ago. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. You know, I said, hold the chair and wait and wait and hope it goes away. (laughs) That's scary. (laughs) I mean, it's one of the things that I find so difficult about this whole question is the degree to which it calls all of us to be such active, alert consumers. Um, you know, we, we have to read so many labels. We have to be so aware of the way that our food is produced. Now, I think that the changes that we've had in regulation of antibiotics on farms in the United States are due to an active consumer movement. And I, re- I really, you know, I, I give a, a huge amount of credit to the people who around about the year 2010 started gathering together first um, hospital systems who didn't want, they said they weren't going to buy meat raised with routine antibiotic use because if there was resistant bacteria on it, it would endanger their vulnerable patients. And then school systems, which made a similar argument for the meat they were buying for school lunches. And then families of people who had been harmed by drug-resistant infections and advocates and chefs and farmers and so forth. All of that consumer movement, I, I believe, really made it possible for the the FDA rules to change around antibiotics and for companies that have relinquished antibiotics to do so. Um, but, but as an individual consumer, as someone going to the, the supermarket in a very time-pressed day and just needing to buy the right things to feed your family, it can really be a burden <laughs> to be, um, to be reading all those labels all the time. Well, and even if one does, we're without all of the information. You know, I had no idea that even these organic chickens had received antibiotics. And so it also, there's been a big shift as far as economics. Um, It's projected by 2050, if things don't change, $100 trillion will be spent on this health issue and 10 million deaths attributed if if things don't change. So we're going to take a short break and then I want to come back and talk about colistin. Um, So we'll just do that and then we'll we'll come back. Uh, This is Ellie Newman and you're listening to That Got Me Thinking. My guest today is Marin McKenna, whose 2015 TED Talk, What Do We Do When Antibiotics Don't Work Anymore, garnered more than one million views. Uh, she's got an interesting group of company in French, hangs out with the CDC, and lucky for us because she's educating us on all these issues that are turning out to be maybe the greatest and most urgent global risk in the words of the United Nations. So we'll come back in just a moment and, and talk about that. This is KDPI 88. Point five FM drop-in radio, listener-supported, non-commercial community radio, streaming live at kdpifm.org, 24-7. 
All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Marin McKenna. Her new book, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. And I left us with a teaser, and I'm so proud of myself. I don't think in four years I've ever done that, but I realize I did. And that was regarding the United Nations. And they, in 2016, over 50 years after scientists suspected the connection, between farm use of antibiotics and the um, resistance that was being built up to that and some of the other medical um, illnesses that were forming. And you said, McKenna, farm antibiotic use and the need to rein it in were finally on the global agenda. They called the antibiotic resistance the greatest and most urgent global risk. And so let's talk about Colliston, because that seems to be where a panic sort of gathered around in a most unlikely place, because this was an antibiotic that hadn't been popular. Um, It was considered sort of the bottom of of the um, barrel, so to speak. And then um, as this resistance built up and and quickly developed, all of a sudden, Colliston was the hope of the future. Right. So this is a really interesting and complicated story. And it is, I hope, the story uh, that that really starts to get people's attention around this issue, because it's the story of our loss inadvertently of, of at the moment, the very last antibiotic we have. And, it, and this, this story prompted that UN meeting last year. So what happened was this. You know, we talked about the early days of the antibiotic era and how all these companies were spinning out drugs, hoping to have a piece of the the profit pie in, in producing new antibiotics. One of those drugs produced in 1955 was an antibiotic called Colistin. Now, if, if you've never heard of Colistin, you shouldn't be surprised because Colistin really didn't get used very much because it was a very harsh antibiotic. It's very hard to take, and it's very toxic to the kidneys. And so medicine just kind of put it at the back of the shelf and held it for all those years, but never really used it, just kind of kept it in reserve. But in the meantime, while medicine was neglecting this drug, agriculture scooped it up, not as a growth promoter, but as a preventive drug to to prevent particularly pigs and calves against disease in very crowded barns and feedlots. And agriculture in various parts of the world, not in the United States for once. We don't use colistin, which is a, an interesting kind of accidental development, but in Asia and in Europe, colistin was used by, in millions of pounds for preventive uses in agriculture. Then several things happen. The first is that antibiotic resistance around the world gets worse and worse. Um, drug, bugs become more and more multi-drug resistant, and the way that we had always responded in the past was there's resistance, we come up with a new antibiotic. Bacteria become resistant to that, we come up with a new antibiotic again. But in that game of leapfrog, (laughs) the, the, the bugs started to win because resistance was so relentless that companies began to not be interested in making new antibiotics because why should they if resistance took away their power and their profit so quickly? So with no new antibiotics on the horizon to sort of make the next step in that game of leapfrog, medicine started to turn to its reserved older drugs, and it started to to use colistin for infections that were otherwise multi-drug resistant and didn't respond to anything else. And in the midst of that turn back to this old drug, several researchers from Wales and from China discover in China in 2015 that people and pigs 
and retail pork are all carrying the same superbug that confers resistance to colistin, and also that the the DNA that uh, that allows for that resistance in these bacteria is on a particular bacterial structure that allows it to move into other bacteria. It's what they call mobile colistin resistance. And this, in microbiological terms, is an earthquake. It is terrifying to disease specialists around the world. So here we have sort of all the strands of this complicated story knitting together the the old history of antibiotics, the market failure of not making new antibiotics, the, the fact that medicine always needs new drugs, the way that agriculture heedlessly used drugs by the millions of pounds in, in to, to fulfill other, to fill in other deficits in agriculture, the emergence of literally globe-spanning superbugs all come together in the story of the drug colistin. And, and it was the discovery of that colistin resistance, which has caused cases now in more than 30 countries, including the United States, that finally got the UN to move last year and to propose potentially a global pact for paying attention to and trying to combat antibiotic resistance at the source. So I want to encourage listeners to to have a visual image. Just every time that you mention millions of pounds of antibiotic, because I think it really helps to sort of think of that moving around our globe, that and multi-millions when we're thinking about the whole globe, and that that has to be manufactured somewhere, then that has to be sent somewhere, then that resides somewhere, and then it goes through the animals and it, it goes back into the system. And I just think to be able to think of it as something that is in such huge amount really being produced and then being shifted around in our environment. You had said uh, the goal is not only to change farming and not only to enlarge the market for safe, sustainable raised meat. It is finally to demonstrate that Thomas Juke's original choice to feed the world with cheap protein at the risk of sickening the world with resistant bacteria is a false choice. So let's spend this last few minutes maybe on... The what really shifted the United Nations and especially America in starting to see this problem differently? Because it really was a point w- at one juncture where it was like, prove it. Again, like little kids. It's like, oh, we'll prove it. And, and Europe so we, seems to, to jump on it more quickly than we did. That's right. So Europe banned the use of growth promoters in 2006, but the, in the first days of 2006, that went into um, effect, and the United States did not until this January. Now, neither of those bans cover preventive use, and for instance, colistin use that got us in trouble, that would be legal under both of these bans. But you know, we talked a few minutes ago about how consumers kind of rose up against the routine use of antibiotics in agriculture. And I really think that that consumer movement made space in the United States, both for the government to act and also, importantly, for companies to act. And this is where I find a, a bit of hope in this long, dark story. Because enough consumers communicated to some meat production companies and some food service companies that they started to change their practices. And and the company that I think really gets most of the credit here is the chicken company Purdue, which is the fourth largest chicken producer in the United States. They you know, kill millions of chickens a year. And in 2014, Jim Purdue, who is the current chairman and the grandson of the founder, and, and for people who were around in, I guess, the, the 70s, the son of Frank Purdue, the it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken commercial guy, um, 
Jim Perdue called a press conference in 2014 and announced that his company was turning away from routine antibiotic use in its chickens. And they have been an industry leader. They kind of shocked the rest of their industry um, and annoyed them, and, and the rest, but the rest of the industry followed along behind. And so now most of, not all, but most of the major chicken companies in the United States are now producing an antibiotic-free line within their sort of brand portfolios, and you can find such chicken in most supermarkets. Again, not all. Uh, you know, and, uh, I mean, you could always buy antibiotic-free chicken if you bought chicken from a beautiful little green grass-fed farm, but this is mass-market chicken being produced in the same you know, industrial-scale, high-throughput way as it always was, but without antibiotics. They found other things to do in their process. Which was a, quite a different reaction to that of Foster Farms in one of the major outbreaks. Um, and, and sort of the, the I think the, we, we think back in history, we think of the Foster Farms outbreak and then also the Jack in the Box outbreak that really were maybe the first major ones that started to really shine the spotlight on this area. And within that, I thought there was the coolest thing. This is where like the subterfuge and intrigue snapped up for me was this idea of fingerprints that within these outbreaks, they could identify uh, these illnesses and and start to work backwards to track them back to where they came from, from these fingerprints. Right, a molecular fingerprint uh, of a particular bacterium. This is a system that's run by the Centers for Disease Control here in Atlanta, where I live, that um, health departments from all over the country use a particular, at this point, not very high-tech process, though it used to be very high-tech when it started more than 20 years ago, um, to take a particular sort of a fingerprint of the genetic contents of a foodborne illness bacterium. And all these, these health departments upload them to a central database, and then there's a, a machine learning system that looks at all of these and tries to compare them and see if there are um, similarities. So you might be able to say, oh, there's a case of foodborne illness in North Carolina, and there's a case in Massachusetts, and there's a case in Michigan, and they all share the same fingerprint, which means they must have the same source. And this is the way, now that we have, you know, now that our food system is very consolidated in big companies that have a reach that is across a continent or across the world, this is the way that you can trace back um, a food, large foodborne illness outbreak to its source. And Foster Farms, which you mentioned, which I think will be very familiar to your listeners because it's a West Coast company. Foster Farms was the source, was thought of, was a very well thought of company, very dominant in California, but turned out to be the source of a very large drug-resistant salmonella outbreak in 2013 and 2014 that was traveling on chicken, made more than 600 people sick in 30 states and territories, probably had actually several thousand victims. And, and that company oddly thought it had done all the right things in controlling drug-resistant and foodborne organisms in its chicken, but there turned out to be a couple of tweaks in the process that they had not known to make, uh, and now they're considered industry leaders. But the, the reach of that outbreak was such, and how seriously ill some of the people were, one of the victims is one of the, sort of the heroes of my book, um, that it really demonstrated that, that, that we cannot keep sufficient track of with the tools we now have of how widely distributed foodborne illness and antibiotic resistance arising from farms are, that we need more data, that we need better tracking, and that we just need to be much more aware of the risk. If we are, are successful in, in beating back the, the use of antibiotics 
in agriculture, then we'll be able to reduce the risk of drug-resistant illness arising from food. And that really is where we want to get to because this is such a severe human health threat. And so before we close, I just want to clarify my understanding and help the listeners as well, the distinctions between salmonella and E. coli, because I know with E. coli, there's a zero tolerance in the industry. With salmonella, it's it's not at zero. And is it accurate with E. coli, you know, if you cook your meat well, you can kill it even if it's there. That seems to be not the case with salmonella, since a number of the examples in the book, these people had cooked their, their chicken. Right, right. So... So a quick primer on, on food, food-borne organisms. Um, the, the organisms that make us sick, that we think of as food-poisoning organisms, they're organisms that naturally live in the, in the guts, the intestinal systems of animals. And they make us sick when they get out of those animals' intestines and they enter our, our intestines through our mouths, right? And the major ones are E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter, and shigella. And they, they exist to different degrees on different species of meat that just happen to favor the intestines of chickens or pigs or cows um, because of the, the, the environment that they present. Now, back in, you mentioned the Jack in the Box outbreak a few years ago. That outbreak of undercooked hamburgers on the West Coast in 1993, that changed forever the United States' understanding of how serious foodborne illness can be. A number of people were made ill, a number of children died, and in response to that, the federal government made one particular organism, just one strain of E. coli, which is known as O157H7, made that a zero-tolerance organism. That is to say, if it was found in a piece of meat, it was absolutely legally required that all that meat, be with, like from the batch or the plant or whatever, be withdrawn from the market by the producer. That the zero tolerance designation has now been extended to five other strains of E. coli. Just in the that was just a couple of years ago, but there is no such zero tolerance designation for Salmonella, for Campylobacter, for Shigella, any of the other foodborne organisms. So when there's a very large outbreak, it's actually up to the company to decide whether or not they're going to to pull their meat. From the market, and that's one reason why the Foster Farms outbreak went on as long as it did was that the uh, the federal investigators had not been able to bring forward a chain of evidence that the company was willing to accept until the outbreak went on for a number more months. So Which went over for there, over a year, right? It was something like sixteen right, months. Right, that's right, and that's exactly right. And so, uh, a thing that makes me uncomfortable in the way we talk about foodborne illness which is often drug-resistant illness in the United States, is how much we put on the consumer. That we sort of put out this message that if only people ran their kitchens like microbiology labs, and if only everybody cooked their meat until it was the temperature of the surface of the sun, then everything would be fine and no one would be at risk. But this is really unrealistic. It's not how people live their lives. You know, you can bring a package of meat carrying drug-resistant bacteria unknowingly into your kitchen and, you know, so you unwrap it in your sink. Maybe some of the juices splash onto another utensil. You put it on your counter if your kitchen is, isn't very big. Maybe there are some vegetables nearby on the counter. You know, if you, if you cook your meat uh, to the point where you still want it to be juicy or maybe you still want it to be rosy, then maybe some bacteria survive. In my view, we, we should not put all the responsibility on the consumer. We should cause the companies that sell the meat and that produce the meat to share the responsibility. Fortunately, the ones that are, are reducing their antibiotic use are actually stepping up to this. They are saying, we are going to stop contributing to the problem 
of drug-resistant infections by reducing our antibiotic use. And you know, I, when, I, when people ask me what they should do to, to, to be part of this conversation, I ask them to look for meat that's raised without routine antibiotics that has no antibiotics ever, no antibiotics used, something like that on the label, because then they're supporting the producers who've moved forward in this evolution and, and hopefully helping that market to expand. Well, you've just answered my last question. And I'm thinking, too, we don't want people, we don't want the solution to be more antibacterial spray in your kitchen. That's not the, that's, no, no, that's like right. down the wrong don't track. Don't do that either. Because, right? Spray, because spray, spray. that's just like... More of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't use antibacterial sprays unless it's just like alcohol and water, right? Because the problem is that the compounds in the, the sprays and gels that you see that say things like 99.9% bacteria killed, they act like dilute antibiotics they create resistance as well. So that is not really a long-term solution. A long-term solution is for us to be less vulnerable to drug-resistant infections because we've reduced the drug-resistant bacteria out there by removing antibiotics from food production. And that's where I want to see us get to. Well, Marin McKenna, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Her new book, Big Chicken, The Incredible Story of How Antibiotics Created Modern Agriculture and Changed the Way the World Eats. Two previous books, Superbug and Beating Back the Devil. Her work can also be found in publications ranging from National Geographic to Wired, and it is great reading and and, um, not only informative, but uh, really uh, engaging, and I loved reading it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this great conversation and thanks for having me.